Welcome back to the One Book, One Northwestern podcast. I'm Camille Williams, and we're exploring issues related to Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. In the book, Stevenson details his early work as a criminal defense lawyer in Alabama, where he worked to advocate for those mistreated by the judicial system. In today's episode, we're discussing abolition. We'll hear from Andrea Ritchie, a leading writer, organizer, and lawyer whose research focuses on the criminalization of women of color and queer and trans people in the U.S. Ritchie is a Black, lesbian, immigrant woman, and she's author of most recently Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. She also co-authored Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the U.S., Hashtag Say Her Name, and many more publications. In 2018, she co-founded, along with Maryam Kaba, Interrupting Criminalization, Research and Action through the Bernard Center for Research on Women. The project aims to end the increasing criminalization and incarceration of women and LGBTQ people of color. Before I ever became anything else, I was an organizer, and I've always been going to be an organizer. And so it never has made sense to me to go off and do work that the people I organize with aren't connected to and that's not accountable to them. And then people often sort of say to me like, oh, your, your writing's, you know, so accessible. It's like, well, I don't want to write a book about people who can't read it. Shayla Betty is a clinical professor of law at Northwestern and director of the Community Justice and Civil Rights Clinic. She litigates on behalf of communities and individuals and works with social justice groups on addressing over-policing and mass imprisonment. She says she's had the privilege of learning from and working with Richie for years. She is one of the most effective, insightful, um, truly brilliant uh, scholars and advocates, and her work is Um, so deeply connected to communities, is so deeply connected um, to the struggle for liberation for, for Black women in particular, and so rooted in abolition. You may be wondering, what does Just Mercy and Brian Stevenson's work in criminal justice reform have to do with abolishing the police? Professor Beatty says the book can easily be read through the lens of abolishing prisons, and the prison system includes law enforcement. I don't think you could read that text and come away with the conclusion that this is a system that can be reformed or that this is a system that just needs a few tweaks and then it will create safety for us. I think what the book really exemplifies is that the the deep inhumanity of of the prison system, the ways in which the system is so deeply entrenched and the ways in which the system is so divorced from the idea of creating public safety. And, and I think as a result of that, although the book doesn't, you know, sort of conclude with with, an, with a call to abolition, I think the book should be read as a call to abolition. Richie spent much of summer 2020 protesting in the streets or helping those harmed or arrested in protests. But even before then, in April, she co-conceived of the COVID-19 Policing Project, a collaboration across organizations in the U.S. to monitor policing in the crisis of the pandemic and offer community support. For me as an organizer, all of 2020 felt like some really intense final exam (laughs) that I was completely unprepared for, that I hadn't studied for, Um, and where the question kept changing and the conditions kept changing. Like, now there's a global pandemic. Now we're criminalizing people in the context of a global pandemic. So last summer was really a demand for survival of black and brown communities and from police violence from economic crisis, from climate crisis, and to say we refuse to continue to have all the resources in this moment go to the people who are killing us and have the people who are killing us be looting resources from the things that we need to survive 
The police killings of black people from George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and many more led to global uprisings and occasionally violent clashes with law enforcement. The demand to defund police departments altogether also gained massive traction and became a major point of political debate and controversy. Yes, we were in a very different place thanks to organizers on the ground in Minneapolis who were like, actually, this prosecution that's happening now is not the limit of justice we want to see. We actually want something that's literally going to stop this from happening again. And when I was hearing tens of thousands of people calling into to city council, like tens of thousands of people calling into city council hearings to say, you know, we don't want money going to policing, we want money going to the things we need to survive. Um, and the level of conversation that was happening. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an incredible, it's a cultural shift moment. According to Ritchie, defund means reducing the size, budget, and power of institutions that surveil, police, and punish communities in order to build entirely new community infrastructures that produce safety. It is the how of abolition, which is the complete dismantling and destruction of those institutions and investment into alternatives. Organizers across the country extracted $840 million from police department budgets last year. And that may seem like a drop in the bucket compared to $100 billion that we spend on policing every year. But every police department budget was slated to go up. So that was a win just in the fact that we pulled them down. And the win wasn't just about budgets because defund isn't just about budgets. It's about reducing the power, the legitimacy, the scope, the contact, the equipment, the weaponry, um, and ultimately the legitimacy of policing as anything that produces any kind of safety for the vast majority of people in this country. And that was a tremendous win. Unfortunately, the investments that we got were much smaller because of the economic crisis, the austerity budget. And so we got $160 million into the community safety strategies. This year, researchers at Interrupting Criminalization updated their July 2020 report, The Demand is Still to Fund the Police. Besides highlighting the successes in the defund movement, it explained why those divestments from police didn't automatically translate into increased public safety. And when you put pressure on a community and do nothing to alleviate a looming eviction crisis, foreclosure crisis, food access crisis, food security crisis, and then plus all the pressure and terror of living in a pandemic, there's going to be upticks in violence. People are, are taking what they need. They're desperate at this point. People in my neighborhood are desperate. And that's going to be blamed on the $840 million, not on the fact that we didn't invest $840 million and so much more that we needed. Violence is going up because we didn't take enough money out of policing. Let's explore abolitionists' major claim. Why would defunding the police make people safer? So what I would say to folks is defund is a survivor-led strategy because the system as it is now is not working for the vast majority of survivors and it's not keeping us safe. And then as Mariam's work points out through Survived and Punished in other places, then people are taking safety into their own hands because there's no safety in the system. And then they're being criminalized for what they're doing to defend themselves, right? Because half of survivors of domestic violence never call the cops. Two thirds of sexual assault survivors never tell anyone, much less the cops, about what happened to them. Imagine how much smaller that number is when the person who sexually assaulted you is the cop. And the ones who do call the cops, they are afraid of being hurt, criminalized, 
um, deported, having child welfare pulled in. Like, the, it's Russian roulette when you call the cops. One reason she says we have not explored more ways to help survivors of violence outside of the policing system is because we've been too transfixed on violence against men or black men, specifically ones who are perceived to be heterosexual and cisgender. If you center the experiences of black women, girls, queer and trans people in your understanding of policing, gender-based violence, and safety, you'll get to abolition much more quickly. <laughs> so that's, um, I think, part of the reason maybe we haven't done that. The shooting of Breonna Taylor was the first time many of us started to reflect on how Black women specifically were victims of police violence. But since 2015, 51 Black women have been recorded as being killed by police. However, besides Breonna Taylor, there were less than five national news stories mentioning the name of any of these women. Police violence against a black woman can be happening in front of our faces and we don't see it as police violence. And there's so many instances over the course of my life, like for instance, for people in one generation, it might be like Amadou Diallo being shot 41 times in his vestibule because the cops, you know, mistook his um, wallet for a gun. I'm like, in 1999, Latanya Haggerty was shot on the south side of Chicago because cops mistook her cell phone for a gun. One is the national story through which we understand a whole bunch of stuff about police violence, which started the stop and frisk lawsuit in New York City that became a big stop and frisk campaign. All of that shaped by Amadou Diallo. If we had put Latanya Haggerty at the center, how would that have changed how we understood police violence? How would that have shifted or, or expanded our understanding of the conversation? I think the other reason is that often Black women experience state violence in private, like Breonna Taylor, in their homes, sort of in the context of police raids, but also police responses to violence, calls for help. Another important note is how mainstream movements against gender-based violence overlooks policing of women of color. The people who generally are concerned about gender-based violence um, are deeply invested in police as the solution to gender-based violence. And so there's a a very loud silence and has been for a long time from the anti-violence movement um, around police violence against Black women, queer, and trans people. Richie says thinking through intersections of race, gender, and other identifications can open up discussions about effective solutions outside of policing, but there is still a long way to go. We need to move also beyond visibility to action, right? Like it's not enough to like know the names and say the people's names. It's actually important to just be like, okay, but then how does this shape the policy that we're demanding? How does this shape the, the litigation that we're doing? How does this change actually what we're doing and how? So what does the abolitionist strategy look like? And more specifically, where should the money from defunding police go? According to Richie, there are many places to prevent violence, starting with whatever individuals need most. So the first thing I want the money to go to is cash in people's pockets. I just want people to have the resources they need right now after a year in the pandemic to take care of themselves, to grieve, to mourn. Most of us have lost someone. Many people in black communities have lost multiple people. We need rent cancellation, complete rent cancellation um, so that people can stop being stressed about how they're gonna pay the rent, which is driving some of the things people are doing to pay the rent. Um, and then we just need a massive influx into housing, um, into, into long-term, affordable, quality, accessible, healthy, environmentally sound, permanent, supportive if need be, housing for everyone. She also advocates for universal health care. When you ask people who are in prison now what would have helped them, they say housing, health care. They say, um, you know, drug treatment if I needed it, not forced on me, but if I chose it. But they also say mental health care, period. Richie says any outlet that helps education, arts, and culture to thrive would help. 
access to public spaces, access to public transportation, access to libraries, to arts, to culture, to ways of building in community together, all the ways that we build together through mutual aid. How do we support that to strengthen communities together? Reggie says defund also looks like transformative justice, which Mariam Kaba outlines as a variety of alternatives to policing. But one size does not fit all. According to Kaba, a million experiments are needed. People are experimenting with ways of keeping each other safe all over the place in ways that are unique to each community, each set of relationships. And we need to pour money into those and also their experiments. So they might fail. And we need to keep pouring money in from the after we learn to the next iteration until we find the things that are going to increase our safety. We have to be um, creative, imaginative, and generative in our investments right now. This is the time to build the new world that we want, not to try and tinker with the one that is clearly not working. find the latest reports, toolkits, and infographics related to the criminalization of women of color and LGBTQ people on interruptingcriminalization.com. To learn more about Andrea Ritchie's activism or to read her books, visit andreajritchie.com. To learn more about the Defund movement at Northwestern, search anycommunity.cops and student publications and on social media. My name is Camille Williams, and thank you to Dr. Ava Thompson-Greenwell for advising on podcast episodes this school year. Visit northwestern.edu slash onebook to listen to more podcasts, learn more about Just Mercy, and hear about our next one book, The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change, and Where We Go From Here, by Hope Jarin. Thank you for listening.